0: We are going to be examining the subject that is fairly rudimentary. It is one that you know, we might think is a little bit on the simple side. Um, but this series was born out of personal trial. Uh, a need to understand what the Lord Jesus Christ really meant when he spoke those words that we've just read together in Matthew chapter 6. Um, If you want to read a little bit more about that background, it's in the preface to the booklet that was sent out by PDF. But for the intents and purposes of our studies, we're going to stick with the Thus saith the Lord and Thus it is written, looking at the examples we are given in the scriptures and using those as our guide. So our first study is looking at the subject of Take No Thought for Your Life. And it's fairly revolutionary, I would say, to our concepts of, of what life is in the Western world, where all we do is take thoughts and make plans for the very things we are told not to. I mean, that's what our entire society is framed around. And, you know, it might seem that the series is extremely impractical. Well, it is. Um, it might also seem that it's impossible. And it is because God requires us an element that the world does not have, and that element, of course, is faith. Our Lord requires us to get up out of the boat and walk on water with him in our daily lives. Now, when we think about this, we look at the basic requirement of scripture. We have the words of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him." It's an essential element that God is looking for in every single one of us. Just turn over, if you would, to Romans chapter 10. Because here we have for us, as we look at Hebrews, and we think of, well then, where does faith come from? And again, this is a rudimentary concept for us. But in Hebrews chapter 10 there, and in verse 17, we have the answer given. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's the only place that it comes from. So contrary to the world, where they think of faith as either like pixie dust that kind of settles down on one's shoulders and elevates one, it's nothing like that at all. It's a completely different thing. But it's not just a set of doctrines in a document. Living the truth is something that is not just being on the right side of an argument. It's way more than that. And if we just come back into Romans chapter 4, our subject being, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we have the example of of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And we read there in the fourth verse, or the third verse, sorry. Um, of Abraham, what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, we don't actually have an English form of the Greek word for believed, because really it's the, it's the verb form of the word faith. So if we were to kind of put it into our vernacular, it would be Abraham to God, and it was counted to him for righteousness but we don't really have that kind of terminology in our language in the English. And so when we look at that faith is not just a set of beliefs but it's action. It's a verb as well as a noun. And so here it is faith that is turned into action. And it's kind of like love. If you just come to 1st of John chapter 3, when we think of love, we think of love as something that, you know, it's a characteristic, it's something that we have to develop. But in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18, it's the same idea as faith, where we read, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now that's the same thing we have when it comes to faith, is that we have to have faith that is active. It's an active faith that is required of every single one of us. So if we just come back a couple of pages over to James and chapter 2, we have here for us described this process, how faith must be actioned. And James gives us this analogy in James chapter 2. And if we jump in at verse 14, we read here, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? And he goes on to say in verse 17, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. And again in verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, when we think about that, it's something that's fairly vivid in its, in its kind of picturing there. We can think of a koala, you know, that Sister Charlene and I got to go and, and actually hold one today. And uh, you know, it, it was kinda neat. If it was Ontario it maybe be a raccoon or something different, we wouldn't give you a bear. Um, but there is is something that's that's really, you know, a beautiful creature created by God. But if that koala wanders onto a road and gets hit by a car, all of a sudden it's no longer cute and cuddly. Right? That is the analogy of faith without works. Give it a week and you won't want to go anywhere near it because that's what happens. And so when we think about this expression that James gives, it's pretty actually graphic. As a body without the spirit of life, without breath in it, is dead. So faith, if it hath not works, is dead also, being alone. And so that's what we have in the scriptures is this picture. And so what is required of us is an active faith. Now, let's just turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, of course, is what we would call the faith chapter. We could also call it the action chapter, because everybody in here is somebody who exhibits faith by the actions that they take up. And we think of of Noah in Hebrews chapter 11 and at verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, was moved with fear. And he prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So when we think of our subject, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what it's talking about is an active faith that translates into righteousness. So when we look at that we could say, well a, a, you know Noah could have believed all he wanted that there was a flood coming. you know he could have got up there give lectures about current events and about you know the coming of the flood. But if he didn't break out a saw and a hammer and actually get about building the ark, he was as dead as everybody else around him. His faith, had to be translated into action. And he could say he believed all he wanted, but unless he acted, he really didn't believe. Now we want to look at this subject this, this evening and throughout this coming week in terms of you know, the uncertain outcomes that we see in the lives of many of the people that we read about in the Bible. A test of faith is something that doesn't have a certain outcome. And you know, we can be, as Christadelphians, very good armchair critics. You know, you think of sports, and you have what they call the armchair coach, or somebody who sits back, watches the game, and tells all the players on the field how they should be doing whatever that game that is that they're trying to play. Well, we can do that with the Bible as well. We can read the stories of the Bible, which we know very well. Many of us have learned them since children and all the way through. We've heard them told time and time again. And we know the outcome. So when we then go look at the characters that are living through these trials, sometimes we can be quite judgmental of the people that were going through them. Because we don't stop to think they didn't know the outcome. They had no idea what was actually going to happen. It was completely uncertain because it hadn't happened yet. So we judge them in hindsight, looking back at the situations, and don't always think about, well, what would it have been like for them at their point looking forward? So when we consider, then, the word of God, and we consider the, the faithful people that we're going to look at this evening, um, we've got to remember that the outcome was never certain. So what we want to do is, is take a look at a couple of them. Um, but first of all, let's just turn up 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because the, the, the record that is given to us um, in the scriptures is there for a, a purpose. It's not just there, a, a set of stories that are given to us, um, but it's, it's very much for a purpose. And we've got to be careful not to be too quick to judge when we note the outcome that they didn't know. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and at verse 11, we read, All these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation or trial taken you, such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted or tried, above that ye are able, but with every temptation or trial will also make a way of escape that ye shall be able, you may be able to bear it. So here we have a similar thing. God is going to bring us into trial, but we've got to remember that there's nothing that we're going to go through, that somebody hasn't already gone through. Usually in the Bible, these are things that we can look at and see. And so the word there, temptation, is this idea of to put something to the test, to put it to the trial. And the question is for us as we look at these characters, how would we fare if we were put to the test in the same way that they were? And you know, we have to, for this, get out of our armchair and not sort of look at it just from the perspective of you know looking back at them but put ourselves in their shoes and think about how would we actually do if we had to walk by faith as many of these brethren and sisters these men and women did. So let's first of all go back to Daniel chapter 3. We have the story of Daniel's three friends, which, of course, is one of our wonderful Sunday school stories that we love, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, of course, we read all about this this passage, and, um, you know, they have the perspective there, um, or we have the perspective. We know the outcome. But just take a look at Daniel chapter 3 and at verse 16, because here we have they didn't know the outcome. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If so be, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up." So we notice here that there is no guarantee of the outcome at this point in time. Now, we know the end of the story. We know what would happen. They didn't. They knew that God was able to deliver them. They had the faith that he could deliver them. But there was no guarantee. But their deliverance may well be the resurrection. And they knew that. And that's where they put their trust and their confidence in God. And of course, we know the story, the wonderful story that we tell to our children, how that they were delivered. There was actually four in the furnace. There was an angel of God there to deliver them. But just notice here in Daniel chapter three, um, in verse 28, 29, what the king actually says after this. He says, then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, uh, spake and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. And he goes on to say that there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. But that was the key to their success. They trusted in their God. And even Nebuchadnezzar could see that's why they were delivered, because they put their faith and their trust in God. Now let's turn back a few pages to the story of Esther. Here's another young woman, you know, which, you know, astounds me in her faith. Um, As we look at this this youngster as she is, you know, um, in the king's court, um, and when we think about Esther, we often don't think about what she would face as well. She was a young woman, a strange land that she's in, in the court of Ahasuerus, the politics of the time. Of course, Haman had threatened the lives of her people, and Mordecai has to put the situation into perspective for Esther. So he goes to this young woman, and he says to her, if we look at Esther chapter 4 and verse 13, Mordecai commanded to answer Astor, think not within thyself or with thyself that thou shalt escape. So don't think that just because you're the bride of the king, that this is going to mean that you're going to be delivered in the king's house more than any or all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, there shall come enlargement or relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, of course, Mordecai was the only one left of her father's house, and he knew that Haman had it in for him. So he basically says, look, kid, we're in this together, and you may well have been put there at this very point in time for this very purpose. And so he causes her to reevaluate her situation. Now remember, this is a time when there's no open vision. And sometimes we're brought into circumstances where we are also called upon to take brave actions, but again, the outcomes are not always certain. And so as we continue reading with Esther, as we come down to verse 16, we see here what happens, what transpires. And notice her faith. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. No certain outcome for this young woman. There was, this was not written yet. The end of the story, all of the things that the Jews would come to celebrate years later, none of this has happened yet. It's just this young woman, probably a teenager, who is going before the emperor of the world at this point in time, and unless he lifts that scepter, her head may well be removed from her shoulders. And so there was no outcome that was certain. And then one other example. Let's just go back to um, David, actually to Jonathan. Um, Let's turn back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14 and just pick up in here um, another youngster um, at this point in time, who shows his faith, like David will later on when it comes to Goliath. Um, and we have this youngster who, who has this faith. But I just want you to think about the situation um, that is, is here. So if you look at First Samuel chapter 14, and if we just take a look at verse uh, chapter 13, actually, we'll just begin in. And um, look there at verse 5, the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is upon the seashore in multitude. And they came and they pitched in Michmash, uh, eastward from Beth-Avon. And what does that do to the people? Well, Saul has 3,000 soldiers, or at least he had them before this happens. And then in verse six, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and thickets in the rocks, in the high places, in the pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And the rest, they follow Saul, trembling. And so into that, Jonathan decides to take action. You know, here we are vastly outnumbered there's only 600 of them left against a multitude 36,000 chariots and horses plus an army that cannot be be numbered here and you think well what would you do in a circumstance like that well what he does, likes decides to do is what we would call in canada poke the bear right so he goes out And he basically decides, if we come down to verse 6 of chapter 14, Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that Yahweh will work for us, for there is no restraint to Yahweh to say, by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Now, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, But would you be willing to risk your life on a maybe? Because that's what he says. It may be that Yahweh will deliver us. No certain outcome here. And his armor bearer, we're not all Jonathans. um, We're not all the leaders. But his armor bearer jumps right in behind him. And he says, you go and I'll go with you. And they're risking their lives on a maybe. And so when we, when we look at this and we consider what is going on here, and, and you say, well, what on earth what are they going to do? So this is his plan, verse 8. Behold, we will pass over unto these men, we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say unto us, tarry till we come, then we will stand in our place, and will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up, for Yahweh hath delivered them into their hand. And this shall be a sign to us. But do you notice that they're going to fight either way? If they say, wait there, we will stand in our place. And we're going to wait for the Philistines to come down to us. If they say, come up to us, we will know that Yahweh has delivered them into our hand. Either way, they're going to fight the Philistines. And so when you look at that and you think about this, you realize that there was no certain Outcome we will stand in our place. So there's an if statement then if they say come up We will stand in our place or so if they say tarry and we will come down to you then we will stand in our place But if they say come up to us, then we will go up Either way, they're going to fight these Philistines So these all these examples are uncertain outcomes. There's no real certainty for any of these young people as to what actually is going to happen. But we all know, of course, the end of the story on every single case. So when you think about this, all these faithful young people, every one of their situations was completely impossible. But they looked past the present to the future. They looked to the kingdom of God, and they believed that God could deliver them. Their deliverance is assured, but it wasn't necessarily going to be in the moment. It wasn't necessarily going to be as the story as we know it plays out. So when we come to this brothers and sisters, we ask the question, you know, well, how would we fare if we were in that circumstance? But you see, we won't be outnumbered by thousands of Philistines we won't have to stand at the edge of a burning fiery furnace and we won't stand before kings where our heads could be removed in an instant all we have to do is trust god in the little things the little things of daily life that's what he asks us to do not the grandiose things that we read about with these characters in the bible so when we come to consider this subject in general we ask the question then well where are our hearts? Because we're all going to face similar tests on a much lesser scale, but similar tests in our life. So where are our hearts when it comes to this? Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 6 that we read together this evening, and consider here what our Lord presents to us. So you know, no grisly deaths, no burning, no having your head removed, no being bludgeoned to death by Philistines but simply put to the test on the simple things. And how do we fare with this? So Matthew chapter 6, and coming in over the page at verse 19, we're told there, lay not up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your hearts be also. And so when you look at that word treasure, it's an interesting word. It's the Greek word thesaurus. right? So we think of what is a thesaurus. It's a book full of all kinds of words and their meanings. And if you're a logophile and you love words, well, then you'll probably like a thesaurus. But the word literally means a store, a treasure, a strong room, a magazine, or a vault, a receptacle for valuables. So this requires us to ask a question of ourselves. What do we pile up in our treasure vault? What is valuable to us in our lives? And it's really quite a simple test. What are the things that we trust in? Where do we put our trust? Because it's quite easy to put our trust in the things of this life. Now come over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. of Timothy chapter 6. We have here again another challenge to us by the apostle Paul here in 1st Timothy chapter 6 and at verse 17 he says charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy that they be good that they do good, that they that be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time that is to come, that they may hold on eternal life. So it's where do we put our trust? What is it that we treasure up? And he says, don't put your trust in uncertain riches, but rather lay up in store, pack your vault, with a good foundation against the time that is to come. So again it's it's what is important in our lives. And this is something in the western world that's very much something that we struggle with because the world pushes into our minds and into our hearts all kinds of things that we are told we need and want and I know because I used to work in advertising. So you know my job was, you know, especially around Christmas time, you know, it was what shall we eat, what shall we drink, and wherewithal shall we be clothed in a red suit? You know, and it was like it would just change, you know, one time it's the Easter bunny, the next time it's whatever they could come up with, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and pride of life, and you had to kind of put together all these ads to appeal to people's desires. And as a young man, you know, you'd sit there thinking, This is absolutely ridiculous. You know, like people don't need these things, but the goal was to try and make them feel like they needed these things. So Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what we've got to be seeking. That's what our focus has to be on. We cannot let it be on the things of this world. Now just come back over the page to first of Peter. And first of Peter If we look into here in chapter 1, he tells us there in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So here we have that juxtaposition of the treasures that moth and rust doth corrupt versus an incorruptible, undefiled inheritance that fades not away, that is reserved for us in heaven, which the Lord, of course, will bring when he returns. So when we think about this, and we think about our lives and the world that we live in, the challenge of the Lord Jesus Christ is, it's pretty direct to the things of our sort of pathetic little lives at times, and the things that we get all wrapped up in, and we worry about, and we concern ourselves with. So you know, he challenges us. If we come back to Matthew chapter 6, and you might want to just put a marker in there. In Matthew chapter 6, he challenges us and asks the question, really, of of what lights our way. So when we think about this, we've got Matthew chapter 6 and uh, verse 22, where he interjects this little admonition When we're talking about what's in our hearts, what is it that we really care about? What are the things that really matter to us? He says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. Now this is just the ESV for help with the translation here. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is going to be full of light. So... When we think about that, it's what we put into our eyes in this world of media that's going to determine whether we have healthy thinking or not. So you can think about all the things that we could put into our eyes whether it's Netflix, or we can go to the internet, Pinterest, Facebook, all these different things, the social media, gaming, all these things that you can project onto your minds, the heroes of the world, the Greek gods uh, sort of brought back to life again, or it could be sports or whatever it's going to be. All of these things are things that we can project into our eyes, which will then sink into our hearts, and that will be what we think about I remember Uncle Maurice Stewart years ago talking about, you know, um, trying to do Bible study. And he'd watch a Western movie the night before. And he got up in the morning and he was trying to do his Bible study. He says, all I could see, I'd sit there and I'd concentrate on this passage was the stagecoach, you know, with the Indians chasing after it, riding through my brain. Right? And if we fill our minds with all this nonsense, it's going to dull our senses to the word. And Bible study is not going to be fruitful. Because we're not going to be thinking on the plane of our Heavenly Father. We're going to have all this other rot that's sort of rolling around in our minds and in our hearts. So we really have to think of what are we going to put into our eyes? Because that's going to determine whether our eye is going to be healthy. And if our eye is healthy, we're going to desire the things of the kingdom. But if we have all this other stuff there, then it's going to blind our minds. Come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 here. The apostle talks about this very issue. And he says, look, here's the problem. If our gospel is hid, in verse 3, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. If you fill your mind and your heart with mindless dreg, such as you know all those things we talked about, God manifestation is not going to be possible because your mind is going to be blinded by the gods of this world. Be they the sports gods, be they the media gods, be they whatever they be whatever sort of pick your poison, all of those things dancing around in your head are going to make you blind to those things. So what we have to do is make sure that our minds and our hearts are cleansed. The washing of the water of the word daily. And if you come to Revelation chapter three, this is of course what the Lord Jesus Christ says to the Laodicean Ecclesia. He says there in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. So he says, I want you to wash your sight. I want you to put eye salve in your eyes. Now, if you think of, you know, a very dry day, And maybe you go down to the beach and the sand blows into your eyes, you know, and and you just, you know, you can't see and and the sun's shining in there and you've got to put drops in there to rinse them out, to to wash them out so that you can see again. Well, that's us with the world. The more we put the grit of the world into our eyes, the more we look at this stuff, the harder it is to see spiritual things the harder it is for the light of the glorious gospel to shine into our hearts so that we can have that treasure in earthen vessels. And so the Lord asks us, counsels us, to wash our eyes and to buy gold, of course, which is tried in the fire, which is faith. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. That's what we've got to put into our minds and into our hearts. Because God is, of course, a jealous God. He said this right from the beginning. Come back to Exodus chapter 20, Israel in the wilderness. He gives them a warning there and he says, look, I'm not just gonna just stand back and be second best to you. There's only so much real estate in our conscious thoughts, right? So you can have one thought at a time. Now, a lot of people think they can multitask. That's absolute rubbish, you cannot multitask. You can hold one thought at one point in time. Now you might be able to put it to the side and then pick up another thought and work on that for a bit and then put that to the side and then go, but you can have one thought at one point in time. And it's a battle for our minds. That's what's going on, a battle for our minds and for our hearts and for our attentions. And this is what God says to Israel in Exodus 20. As we come in at verse five, verse one, sorry, God spake all these words saying, "I am Yahweh thy God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the same applies to us. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is under heaven or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. I, Yahweh thy God, am a jealous God. He wants us for himself and he doesn't want to share us with the world. He doesn't want to share us with our hobbies. He doesn't want to share us with the next Netflix series. He doesn't want to share us with anything. He wants us wholly to himself. That's what our God desires of us. He wants us to be dedicated to him. He is a jealous God. And that's the reality of it. Come over to First of Peter again, chapter one. It's pillar to post from the beginning to the end of, the, of the, the, the Bible. And the reason is, of course, is that a heavy price has been paid. It's not like he's got no skin in the game, as we would say in Canada. He's got a lot in the game. In fact, if you look at First of Peter chapter one and verse 18, we're told. We were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your vain lifestyles or conversations that you received from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, which the Lord God himself gave. He gave his son. And so he doesn't want to share Us with the world because we've been purchased with a price. And so, going back to Matthew in chapter 6, this is what the Lord then throws into the play here. When we think about these simple passages that we read through, in Matthew chapter 6, he makes this very clear comment. We can't play both sides of the fence. Now, we love to do that. We love to kind of like, you know, we'll go to a meeting on a Sunday and maybe Bible class and a few other things. But then we've got all this other stuff that we're doing. Well, God does not want to share us. um, And the Lord himself challenges us. And he says in verse 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or else you will hold to the one and despise it. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, it's not a, well, you know, you can squeeze a bit of this in and a bit of that in and kind of make it come out in the wash. You cannot serve. That is an emphatic statement. And when you look at that idea of serving, it's the idea of being a slave to something, doing service for, being under obedience to, or yielding object- or, uh, subjection. Uh, yielding ourselves unto something, and it's a master. A master is the one to whom a thing or a person belongs, and it decides the direction which one is going to take. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we allow ourselves to be brought under the power of? Now this is a typical T-shirt in Ontario, you know, U of T, the University of Toronto. You probably have them here as well, but notice the statement there property of the University of Toronto, right? And that's what the world wants to tell you. When you're going to uni, you are property of the university. Really. Now, we might need to go there for training, for our part-time job, until the kingdom comes. But it's just a part-time job. It's just for now. It's like Jonah, right? You know, you say, well, what was Jonah's occupation? They asked him that. Well, he was a dentist. You know, well, we don't know. Doesn't tell you what he was. He says, I'm a Hebrew, a servant of the living God. We have no idea what Jonah did for a job. He was a servant of the living God. Our jobs right now are just part-time jobs. They're like jobs that you have as a kid, working at the gas station or whatever it is, just for now. It should not define who you are. What should define who we are is our Heavenly Father. So is it school? Is it our work? is it our social life what are we the property of what is it that we yield ourselves servants to obey and this has to translate into action it has to translate into a frame of mind that he gets into here in Matthew chapter 6 where he goes on to exonerate us or not exonerate us but exhort us about how we are to behave take no thought for your life so the theoretical is fine You know, we can talk about this in theoretical terms until it comes to the practical outworking of it, where faith without works is dead. So, back in Matthew chapter 6, where we read there in the 25th verse, therefore he says, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, nor yet for the body what ye shall put on. Is not life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? And so when we think of this idea of taking no thought, again, it's a verb. And the word literally means to be anxious or troubled with the cares of, looking out for a thing, seeking to promote one's own interests. That's what we are not to do. Now the word is used actually as a cross-reference in Luke chapter 10. Remember the Lord says, Martha, Martha, there are careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that. That word careful is the same word here of take no thought. Careful about many things. She was so worried about all of those domestic things that had to be taken place which were all probably fairly legitimate. But the Lord says, don't put that above what we're supposed to be doing, being anxious with these cares And so when we think about that, we have this on another level. If we come to Philippians chapter (coughs) 6, excuse me, come to Philippians chapter 4, we read there that we are told, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, that was back in the first century. We're living in a time when he literally is at hand. That was the coming in A.D. 70 of the Lord and his armies and judgments against the nations of Israel. But we now live on the knife edge of the kingdom when the Lord literally is at hand. And so what does he tell us? Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ or through Christ Jesus. So don't be careful, same word, to take no thought to be anxious about for anything, because the Lord is at hand. Now that's easily said, but how do you translate that into your daily life when you lose your job, when you're at school and you've got the big test tomorrow or whatever it might be? You know, do I skip Bible class? Do I, you know, not go out to meeting? Do I put those things first? Or do I seek God first above all else? How do I translate those things? Come, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Same idea here as well, when we have this laid out for us in verse 32. He says, I would have you without carefulness. Now he's talking here about the married state and about husbands and wives. And he says, I want you to be without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. And as husbands and wives, we can assume the role of the master in our spouse's life and demand of them carefulness. But he says, I want you to be without carefulness. So as husbands and wives, you really need to think about the pressure we put on each other to be careful for the things of this life. We have to consciously decide in our marriages not to make the success of them dependent on the things of this life. How much we've got in the bank, the size of the house, you know, the, the, the things in the house, the decorations of the house, or whatever it might be for the husband, the job, and the, 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 the work, and the climbing the corporate ladder, all those types of things. Rather, if you just come over to 1 Corinthians 12, he says, this is the kind of carefulness that I want you to have. So 1 Corinthians 12, and at verse 25, he says there that the members should have the same care one for another. That's where our anxiety should be about the other members of the ecclesia. That's what he's looking for us to have. And a good example of that, if we go over to Philippians, is Timothy. Where we read there in Philippians chapter 2 and at verse 19, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus unto you shortly, that I may also be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own things not the things which are of Christ of Jesus Christ. And that was Timothy. He naturally cared for the state of the ecclesia. That's got to be what we are anxious about. Not the bank account, not how full the fridge is, not how decorated the house is, not all those things that, you know, the Gentiles seek after. But we have to have anxiousness and carefulness about uh, brothers and sisters and so if we just go back to the beginning of the chapter in chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery, not a thing to be grasped that to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was made in likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name above every name. So that's the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose care, whose anxiety was not about himself, so much so that the disciples would say to him, Lord, you haven't even eaten. My meat, he says, is to do the will of him that sent me. That's what he fed upon. And so when we look at this, there's really two categories that our Lord points out our lives and our bodies. Those are the things that the Lord points out, what we will eat or drink, and what we will be clothed with, what we will put on. And the life there is the idea, if we think of this, it's suki, it's the breath of life, the vital force that animates the body, the seat of feelings, the desires, and the affections. Right. So that's the idea that we have. And in fact, it's even the Apostle Paul picks this up in Acts when he, he points out in Acts chapter 17, he says, look, you really got to realize, um, and he, he's talking about their poets even, he says, will agree to this, that in God, in him, we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your poets have said, for we are his offspring. We forget, brothers and sisters, where things come from where all the things that we are blessed with come from. We tend to lose focus of this, and we think, well, it's because I have gone to school or got this training or worked my way up the corporate ladder, and I have done this and received that achievement and uh, you know this, this goal or objective, met this quota or whatever it might be, and we think that it's us that is doing these things. But it's really not. If we come back into the psalm, Psalm 104, we find here that it's actually the hand of God in our lives. Because this is what the psalmist says. It's not just us, but it's all creation. All things come from God's hand. All life is held in God's hand. Um, We don't often think of sea life, but this is what he says in Psalm 104, verse 27. So is the great and wide sea, wherein all things creeping innumerable, there are tons of them, both small and great beasts. There go the ships, there is that Leviathan, whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season, that thou mayest, thou givest them, they gather. Thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. But you hide your face, they are troubled, you take away their breath, they die. They return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit. They are created. And thou renewest the face of the earth. This is the way it's been from the beginning of time. All creation, God, feeds. Man is no different. We just think we're doing it. And we lose perspective. And we think it's the company that we work for, perhaps. It's our provider. It's not. It's simply the conduit through which the father decides to provide for right now. And you learn in your life, as I did, after working at the same place for 20 years, that all of a sudden, that conduit stops. And you go into momentary panic. You know, what am I going to do? Wherewithal am I going to be clothed? What am I going to eat? How am I going to feed my children? And then God reminds you, no, 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 no. The company you work for is not your provider. It's the conduit through which I provide, and now I can provide you with a different conduit, reminding us that he is the one that provides for us. So we come back then to Matthew chapter six, and here is what the Lord says here, in chapter six and verse 26, of course, where we have these words that we are most familiar with, and we put them up on the walls and things like that. Behold the fowls of the air, They sow not, neither do they reap, they don't gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? The word really means one span to his life. Which of us can say, you know, I'm gonna gonna live longer You know, you have all these people running around jogging and, you know, doing all this stuff. And as my dad would say, I've never seen a happy jogger, you know. But you think of all this. And people, there's whole industries based on trying to prolong their life. But when the time comes, none of us can redeem ourselves. And it might be sickness, it could be an accident, it could be anything. And God takes away the life that we may have. None of us can add. One cubit to our stature. Our Heavenly Father, though, has our lives in His hands. He has every breath we take in His hands. And He says, Look, He feeds the birds. Don't you think you're better than them? And so, brothers and sisters, sometimes we just lose perspective. We get so wrapped up in us providing for ourselves, we lose perspective on these things. We had this in the readings yesterday, just come back to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25, think about the children of Israel as they were put to the test way back under the law. Leviticus 25 and at verse 18, therefore, he says, you're going to Do all my statutes, keep my judgments, and do them, and you shall dwell in the land in safety. The land shall yield her fruit, and you shall eat your fill, and dwell therein in safety. And what if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow, nor gather in the increase. So that was a practical question. Notice the question, what shall we eat? This is Matthew What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? So the seventh year, they were not to sow. So the question is, well, what shall we eat? It's the exact same question. He says, I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And ye shall sow the eighth year, and eat the fruit thereof uh, until the ninth year, until the fruit come, and ye shall eat of the store. So God says, I will provide for you. If you obey me, I will provide for you. Are we any different, brothers and sisters, today? Now you look at this from a practical point of view, it's ridiculous. Not so the fields for the seventh year. Are you kidding? You know, like that's, you think of Israel coming out of Egypt, of course they didn't do this because that's eventually why they were kicked out and the land was given, you know, rest for all the Sabbaths that it missed. It's completely impractical, absolutely ridiculous from a worldly point of view. But God says, if you believe me and you put your trust in me, then I will provide. Had he not proven it already all the way through the wilderness on the sixth day, gather enough manna and it will feed you through the seventh day. Now gather it any other day and it will all go rotten and get worms in it. But if you gather it on the sixth day, it will provide you through the seventh day. Now he says, I want you to take that a step further and do it every year. It's a challenge that was made to Israel. This is nothing new. When the Lord comes and preaches this in Matthew 6, it's nothing new. This is all things that they had laid out before them. And so we have, of course, the story in Exodus chapter 34 that the men were to go up and appear before Yahweh three times in the year. He says, I will cast out the nations before thee, enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up and appear before Yahweh thrice in the year, Yahweh thy God. Now think how ridiculous that is. You got the Philistines living over the other side of the hill. I've got my pregnant wife and little children who cannot accompany me up to Jerusalem, but the commandment says, go up and I will protect them. Do you believe him or don't you? What would you do? If you're the father of the house, would you leave them behind? I mean, it all sounds academically fine, but think of the ramifications. But God says, I will protect you. It was the challenge that was given under the law. And the thing was, they were to teach this to their children. They were to teach this principle. In Psalm 78, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might make them known to their children, which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, That they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. Now you think, brothers and sisters, of the generation before and the generation before them who established this ecclesia. Which many of us have benefited from. Uncle Purse was the one who lit the fire for me as a young man. I was baptized but he was the one that I would say converted me right, it was like 1967, I wasn't born in 1967, by the way, but it was a talk from 1967 that my Uncle Paul played for me and all reel to reel. And it was all about the march of the rainbowed angel. And it's like, the Lord is coming, you better get on the bus, right? And it was just so absolutely riveting. And that's the kind of things that we've got to take and teach them to our children. That same power and that same absolute confidence in the word and then teach it to their children the generation that is to come and keep passing that on because those are the things brothers and sisters that they set their hope in God and that practically has to turn into how they live their lives it practically has to show up in the way that they direct their steps their steps so let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 and just pick up the narrative there again you know, what you're going to put on. So read the words, take no thought for raiment. Why take you thought for raiment, verse 28? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like unto one of these. So if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow's cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And that's the challenge to us. You know, consider the lilies. Thoughtfully and examine carefully. Consider well. They toil not. They don't grow weary, tired, or exhausted. Become weary with labor. And yet God provided for them. And Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed like unto one of them. What about us, brothers and sisters? Where is our faith, and where is our trust? I mean, think of Israel wandering through the wilderness. You know, there they are as they they go through the wilderness, and they're there, you know, completely impractical. It's not like they're gonna come across a mall in the wilderness. You know, there was no such thing. You're in a desert wandering around in Sinai for 40 years. How absolutely ridiculously impractical. Stupid from a worldly point of view, but God was there every step of the way. And when you think about this, you think of passages like Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 5. Forty years in the wilderness God led them. Their clothes did not wax old upon their feet, and their shoes did not wax old or so their clothes did not wax old upon them, and their shoe did not wax old upon their feet. And even Nehemiah picks this up in chapter 9 and verse 21 and reminds Israel in his day, look, remember Israel in the wilderness? Remember that for 40 years they went? You want to talk about hand-me-downs? They never wore out. You know, this was the way the situation was, and the Lord asks us to do the same thing that he asked Israel to do in the wilderness. They lack nothing for 40 years. There's no shopping malls, there's nothing, nowhere to go pick up provender and supplies, and their clothes didn't wear out. Well, what about us today? And yet, how many of us will make the statement, you know, I've got nothing to wear? You know, and and there we are in our closets that are bursting, you know, and we have to then go get bigger closets. And we have walk-in closets, you know, and you almost have drive-in closets when you come to America, you know, and it's just ridiculous. And then we can make the statement, I have nothing to wear. 40 years in the wilderness, brothers and sisters, what about us? And so when we think about that, do we believe what we sing? Think of Psalm 23. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not lack. Now, when I was a little boy, I couldn't quite understand that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I used to think, well, why wouldn't I want him? But, of course, it means I won't lack anything, right? So, So when you think about that, he makes me to lie down by green pastures. What shall I eat? He leads me beside still waters. What shall I drink? He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He provides a covering for us and he prepares a table for us. So there we have it, a table prepared in the wilderness, right in the very words of the song that we sing, answers those questions. And so when we think about this, brothers and sisters, on a very practical level, the Lord Jesus Christ challenges us. Therefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow's cast in the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? And that's the key. That's the key, little faith. You see, they had faith, but it was short-lived. They had faith, but it was short in measure or of light intensity. That's what it means. But you see, God was also compassionate with Israel in the wilderness as they traveled through. Come to Psalm 78. As they traveled through the wilderness in the 78th Psalm, God was most compassionate with this obstinate people because they just constantly didn't believe and didn't trust in him. So Psalm 78 verse 34, when he slew them, then they sought him and they returned and inquired early after God and remembered that God was their rock, the high God, their redeemer. And see, that's the issue. You know, it takes us sometimes controversy or trial in our lives, being slain of our father, so to speak, before we will seek him. The word literally is derash, which means to beat down a path to or to frequent a place. And you've got to ask the question of yourself, do I beat down a path between myself and the Ecclesial Hall? Is that path very well-worn? Is it completely beaten down, especially after COVID? Or is it all overgrown? And basically, something that you could barely recognize anymore. They are to return to the Lord. And the word, of course, means literally, shwoop, to uh, turn around, to repent, to go in the other direction. See, repentance isn't stopping something. Repentance is doing a U-turn. It's continuing traveling. It's continuing with momentum, but just going in the other direction. And so it was they had to turn around and they had to inquire of their God. But the problem was they went through the cycle. And they would go through something like, you know, we've gone through with COVID, which kind of hits a reset button and gets us all thinking about what's actually important in life. Take COVID away. And what happens to us? Well, what happened to them? Psalm 78, verse 36. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and lied unto him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. They flattered him, they deceived, they were gullible, they were naive. They were really only seducing themselves, really is what they were doing. It was not right, it wasn't stable, it wasn't firm, it wasn't established. And of course, as we read here, it wasn't steadfast. That's the word amen, or aman. Right? So something that is is trustworthy. So we say, I agree. This is truth. Amen. Right? That's the Hebrew word, and it literally means a pillar of a door, something that holds up the frame. And so that's what our service in the truth has to be. We need to be steadfast with our Father. But God was merciful unto them, and like as a father pitieth his children, So Yahweh pitieth them that fear him, because he knows our frame, he remembers we are dust. For man his days are as grass, as the flower of the field he flourisheth, the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and the place thereof shall no man know any more. But the mercy of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to keep that in mind, and we also need to recognize that one of another. We want to end on this thought, brothers and sisters, and that is in Psalm 78. Israel had this problem. In spite of repenting, the next big issue would come up, and they would turn around, but they would limit God's ability to do anything in their minds. It was all in the head. And so we read here in Psalm 78, in verse 41, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel, they remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy. And the word there, limited, literally means to scribble or to set a mark. Well, what about us, brothers and sisters? You know, when the next big issue comes along, do we forget how he delivered us out of the one that just went before? So Israel in Psalm 78, well, sure, He brought forth water from a rock, but can he furnish a table in the wilderness? What shall we drink? What shall we eat? And wherewithal shall we be clothed? You see, when you see Israel marching through the wilderness, as we call it, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew chapter 6, it's all about what Israel had already been through. There was nothing new. The Lord wasn't bringing in anything new. He was just simply bringing out of those things, out of the law, out of the children of Israel, traveling through the wilderness. And this is one of the big points. Do we limit in our minds and in our hearts the ability of God to work in our lives today? Because Israel did that all the way through the wilderness. They forgot him. But you had some Like Joshua, like Caleb, who believed that God was able to overcome. Like Jonathan, the Lord can save by many or by few, citing the law of Moses. Like Esther, who believed that God could deliver her, but was willing to hazard her life. Like all of those faithful of old, who didn't have a certain outcome. So the question for us is, where is it that we put our trust Where do we really put our confidence? God wants us to put our trust in him above everything else, not just lip service, but place our confidence in his ability to look after us in all the the minute things of this life. We might think it's our might, our intuition, our training, our education, our business acumen, our entrepreneurial schemes that will, will get us through this life. The reality is it's only our God. What is our tower? We'd like to end with this passage. It's Proverbs chapter 18. And we have here in verse 10, the name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and as an high wall in his own conceit, before destruction the heart of man is haughty. It's lifted up and before honor is humility. So when you think of The world and its strong towers. Many of you will remember these two towers. They're called the World Trade Center Towers, the Twin Towers of 9-11, the symbol of wealth and prosperity of the world. Well, how many people do you think, brothers and sisters, were running to those towers when the trouble came in 9-11? Everybody was trying to get as far away from them as they possibly could. And if we, brothers and sisters, put our trust into this world and all of its institutions, whether it's our jobs, our education, whatever it might be, our homes, all those things are going to be dissolved, as Peter says. We need Yahweh to be our strong tower. That's where we need to run because this whole world is all going. The whole lot of it is going to be wiped away. So what is it that we're going to put our trust in? Our help, of course, is our Father. He is the one that we have to put our trust in. He is the one that we have to look to. And we hope to spend this week looking at the passages as we go through the scriptures, as we follow through the story of of, uh, Matthew chapter six and follow this through to see how our God is our provider and how we have to seek him first above all else And it has to translate into actual, real actions in our lives today, not just theory, not just songs, not just placards on the wall, but actual action that our faith is active. We faith God and it will be accounted to us for righteousness.